0: MyPatriotSupply.com
1: if you're trying to lose weight, exercise is almost meaningless. You're kidding. Yes, it's important, but diet is going to get you the majority of the way there. Some people say, oh, well, I'm on my period, so I can't get pregnant. Untrue. You could still get pregnant on your period. Fevers carry benefits. Actually, yeah. What, what's Can the benefit? If my kid has a
2: fever, I'm terrified.
1: That's your body fighting off the infection. When you follow the breastfeeding method, the likelihood that you will get pregnant is about the same as if you were on birth control.
2: How the
3: heck did we get pregnant four months <laughs> postpartum? Is there like a number that like couples should do it per yeah, week? Like 40
1: seven is usually what i recommend
3: (laughs) social media is littered with health gurus that lack credibility and medical misinformation so we sat down with dr mike he's a board certified family medicine physician with over 25 million followers we asked him the tough questions like is breastfeeding birth control does cold plunging actually work and how to fix your sex life postpartum we talk about all this and so much more in today's episode I can't believe we're with the world famous Dr. Mike. (laughs) I I was listening to your story a little bit. So weren't you supposed to be like on Ellen DeGeneres
1: because you went viral for being like the hot doctor? Yeah, yeah. And then then it didn't work out or something? It was such a mess. I mean, being a young doctor, you're thinking about education, education only because you want to be the best doctor that you can. And I had this moment of virality, which is weird to say as a doctor going viral. Like that sounds like something bad. Yeah. (laughs) Viral with the pandemic. I got invited to do all these talk shows and I didn't know what to pick. So I picked Ellen DeGeneres show, and I'm like, all right, this is it. This is my moment. I'm going to show my medical knowledge. Why I'm the youngest doctor in my program. Why I published research at a young age. And then they call me the day before, and they're like, hey, so um, Hillary Clinton is announcing her run for presidency. She's never done daytime talk show, so we're kicking you off because the other guests are like Pink and Jimmy Kimmel. Oh my! I'm like, oh. No problem. I'm going to call Steve Harvey back and say, like, I'll do your show now. (laughs) I call back Steve Harvey. They're like, no, 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 you're last week's news. We're no longer interested. (laughs) And I got a really quick lesson in what it's like to get 15 minutes of fame in media. Oh, my goodness. And that's why you started your YouTube channel, right? Well, I started doing a few TV shows then, and I wanted to put out a meaningful message about preventive care, learning about health and your body, and how we can actually take control of our own health. Things that I was passionate about. But all the TV networks were gatekeeping. And they were like, well, you know, you're not the world's most famous doctor. You're not from an Ivy League education. Why would we use you? And they essentially started kicking me off the shows. And I said, well, okay, I'll do it on my own and be a disruptor. Because that's what I felt social media was the place for. Now, looking back, what is this, like six, seven years later, uh, we have three billion views, long form views on the channel. Holy cow. We're coming up on 12 million subscribers. And it's for education. They're not there anymore for the sexy doctor bit. That was the silly thing that started it. Yeah. But now people are wanting to learn. And I'm excited about that because that was always my passion from day one.
3: And that's what we're hoping to do today is learn from you because you're, <laughs> yeah. you're a very smart guy. You have <laughs> just the craziest credentials. I'm curious. I wanted to open with how the heck did we get pregnant four months <laughs> postpartum?
1: <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> well, okay. So this is... Um, a thing that we don't communicate well in healthcare in general, it's the communication of risk and what it mm-hmm. means to uh, have a chance at something happening. When you follow um, the breastfeeding method, the technical name for it is lactational amenorrhea method, LAM. Okay. And what is supposed to happen is if you're breastfeeding the exact correct amount, which means a set of every four hours during the day, every six hours at night, for the six months exclusively breastfeeding, no supplementation, nothing else, the likelihood that you will get pregnant is about the same as if you were on birth control. Are you kidding me? But that doesn't mean it's 100% effective. It also doesn't work past six months very well. And most people I would say that follow this method, don't follow it to a T. Mm. Which is why it's important to talk about real world outcomes as opposed to what happens under research. Like outcomes. For example, most people hear like, oh, condoms are very effective, 90 plus percent effective, Mm -hmm. uh, 97% effective in preventing pregnancy. But then when we actually look at real world outcomes, when people misuse condoms, they break because of misuse, people have uh, intercourse multiple times in a session, they Mm -hmm. may uh, get some sperm on their hands first, and then it ends up on the condom, and then they use it. It drops to like mid-80s percentage mm-hmm. of working. And I think it's important that we talk about real world as opposed to what happens when we follow the rules exactly, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. feel like that's more applicable. That
3: makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. So no, likely that's what happened. That, <laughs> that, that That's Abby hearing that. That's crazy that we got pregnant. Like, well, that, Did you
2: follow
1: the rules? Like those three?
2: Well, rules? see, I think you, the one that got me is I think we... Did we ever go longer stretches than six hours in the night?
3: Maybe. Maybe that was it. There That's was the no thing,
2: supplementing. Like, yeah. But you know, yeah, we weren't using Every formula. F- at least four hours during the day.
1: Yeah.
2: And it was under six months. I, the only thing I can think of is maybe we went a longer than six hour stretch in the night.
1: And we were and told... And it's still 98%. So you had yeah. a 2% chance there.
2: Crazy. but we Two
3: were out told, of 100 people. Yeah, I mean, we were told by Abby's doctor that like, she was like, don't rely on uh, yeah, breastfeeding as that. a method. And we knew that. And we knew of people that had gotten pregnant... Um, while breastfeeding before. So we knew that. but we also thought it was literally too like, oh, it we're was comfortable. It with was the, two, that times, two times two unpro- times uh, unprotected. and that's that's what happened, which is crazy yeah.
2: under those circumstances and, which is pretty crazy.
3: And it's having kids that close in age is so much fun. and I'm so thankful for it. But the
1: initial shock, like, <laughs> oh my God, you <laughs> probably
2: not also good for you having back to back yeah, the
1: general guidance from like, I don't know, the FDA or CDC who puts out guidance on this is like, 18 months in between is ideal to letting mm-hmm. things heal and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, the body will throw you in for surprises. Wait, 18 and months
2: before getting pregnant again or before mm-hmm. like having another baby? Yeah. Oh, okay, wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That's the, but again, it's guidance. And then there's real world what actually happens. So it's important to know that. And the reason why it happens, like the, the pregnancy while uh, the situation is ongoing is you're supposed to be not having a period when you're breastfeeding, right? And people say, well, since I'm not having a period, I can't get pregnant. Well, ovulation takes place a couple of weeks before the period.
2: The timing of that is so crazy. Yeah. We were meant to yeah. have them back to so back. We had That's our baby. Yeah,
3: we had our baby early July and then we found out we were pregnant early December. So that meant that Abby, like technically got pregnant beginning of november so yeah four months but
2: yeah, i and had that's to why. my period so i was like
3: yep. must have yeah, been now, the timing was perfect have you, wait you haven't had a period in how many years it's like four years or something
2: yeah
3: that's ridiculous but
2: i've <laughs> had two babies
3: yeah cool because abby also has an iud in that like okay major, yeah stop getting her period which yeah. i was so curious too speaking of like iud's and you mm-hmm. brought up birth control <laughs> yeah so yeah like th- i feel like there's been a lot in the media recently about how all of that can affect your hormones and your and your mood and and there's all these different effects that can potentially happen when you are on birth control whether that's the pill or an iud and so i'm curious if you could just speak to that because so many people are like what there's should like I a do? lot
2: of criticism now about birth control yeah, hormonal. yeah.
1: well I feel like it's short-sighted, the criticism, and a lot of it is fear-mongering based and misinformation based. So it's like twisting out percentages of what actually is happening mm-hmm. uh, and not take into consideration the flip side of the equation. Basically, when you're thinking about uh, developing a risk of some medical condition, you also have to think about if you don't do the intervention, what is the mm-hmm. risk, right? Mm-hmm. So like if you have unintended pregnancies, you may need medical procedures. Uh, pregnancy itself is a high-risk medical event. There's things that happen for from an unintended pregnancy that are mm-hmm. risky. And most people don't think about that. They don't think about the unintended consequences of not taking a birth control. What I see mostly in the social media space is the rise of these health gurus that claim to have all the answers when modern science either doesn't have the answers or wants to bring nuance to the conversation. Like if you ask me a question today, uh, is, thing x good or is medical procedure x good i will never say it's good or bad Mm -hmm. it's for whom in what scenario uh why would you want to do it Mm -hmm. are you okay with the Mm -hmm. risks are you okay with the potential benefits meanwhile the health gurus that make tiktok videos and claim to have all the answers are like it's absolutely terrible for you this is what you got to do never take this take this magic pill this is going to fix everything and that certainty and the overconfidence is actually a form of trust hacking, mm-hmm. where if you go see a doctor and your doctor is kind of unsure and that person is so confident, you're more likely, from like lizard brain perspective, to believe the person who's way more confident. Mm. But what I'm trying to tra- train people to think when they're looking at and evaluating different experts is the person who's bringing all the nuance is actually the one that is most accurate. Because in medicine, we're trained to think in maybes Mm. so for example if a patient comes in with abdominal pain i'm not going to be overly confident say the exact diagnosis Mm. i'm going to say one that's the most likely two three four others that are part of my differential other things it can be and then also talk about treatments and say this is a treatment that works x percent of the time Not this is definitely going to work for you right and that sort of nuance is a little unsettling for people because no one likes to be uncertain Mm -hmm. But we have to be comfortable with a level of uncertainty because we're doing the best that we can with the information we have on hand. Mm. That's the correct way to practice medicine.
3: It's crazy too, because we've had friends that have had an IUD and gotten pregnant on the IUD. When like that, from my understanding, is the most effective method of birth control. Yeah. Other than abstinence, I'm sure. Because that, like, how do you get pregnant if you're not actually doing <laughs> Exactly. It. Um, my, I was about to throw in a joke yeah. about that. Oh, but yeah. 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 That's what we were taught in high school. But I feel like not many of my classmates followed that. Yeah. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, how, how does that happen? Like, how does somebody get
1: pregnant on an IUD? Because that, like, theoretically shouldn't happen, right? I mean, anything that's 99% doesn't mean that it's... 100%. So we have to keep in mind that things happen in, in these scenarios and there's always a risk. Um, like you said, it's one of the more effective birth control methods. The reason why we like those methods is because they're considered um, like long acting, reversible contraceptives, meaning that you put them in, you don't have to think about it versus remembering have, having to take the pill every mm-hmm. single day at around the same time to get the biggest benefit. And they're reversible. So you could always remove an IUD or you could take the implant out. So we like those because there's less chance of human error mm. in those situations. But it doesn't mean they're 100% perfect. Uh, like I just did a sex ed quiz that's going live on um, on my YouTube channel today with my nephew. And I asked him, like, <laughs> do you think condoms are the most effective form of birth control? He said, yes, which is not true. It's, yeah. it's these long-acting reversible agents. We also ask questions like, you know, if there is uh, sperm floating in a pool, can it like seep its way in and get someone pregnant And or in a hot tub? The answer is no. But he was like, oh, my God, maybe. I don't know. I so there's a lot of misinformation swirling on there for, uh, online and in people's minds that we have to like really get out there as doctors and do a little better job at educating on. Yeah. I'm going to throw a curveball at you, and I'm
3: so curious what your, what your thoughts are on this. But we just had somebody on the podcast that was in this whole controversy where this woman claimed that she got pregnant, and she said that even though they didn't actually do it uh, because they did other acts where his, you know, oh, substance God. got on her, and then
1: she said it somehow got in, in, inside of her somehow. Like, what is the likelihood of that? Yeah, very little. Like, if you're rounding down to a whole number, it's probably zero, but it can happen. So like I talked about earlier, like if you have semen or sperm on your fingers and then you put on a condom for the second time, so it's very possible that Mm. that could happen. Okay. Um, Especially if you're not using like a spermicidal lubricant, that's actually going to kill the sperm. Okay. Um, Also, like some people say, oh, well, I'm on my period, so I can't get pregnant. Untrue. You could still get pregnant on your period. Because remember, most people when they're saying they're on their period, it's because it's the act of bleeding. Mm. But just because you may be having some bleeding, that could be spotting. That could be something else. And Uh you're not actually having your period. So there is no like 100% way to time it where you're not going to get pregnant. Every time you're having unprotected sex, and even when you're having protected sex, there's a possibility that you're getting pregnant.
2: So then how do you feel about those birth control methods where they like give you a green light or red light?
1: Oh, yeah. Like natural family family planning. Planning, So there's no way to predict it. Yeah. I mean, look, that's an imperfect system. There's better ways like with the long acting agents. Um, Stacking things like if you have an IUD plus a barrier method like a condom is usually the best way because you're you're getting really good odds there Mm, and on top of it you're also getting STI protection which most people don't think about. They think oh well I got the contraception checked off I did the IUD or I have the implant in but then what about sexually transmitted infections? Also important to think about because they do impact folks lives and it's Mm -hmm. easy enough to put on a condom and be safe that way. So. And speaking on sexually transmitted disease, obviously the condom
3: is a great way to protect against that. Are there other methods too, in addition to condoms, that Barrier. people can? That's, that's it. That's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because isn't there like there's a there's a condom for men in I think I learned in health class. Well,
4: in yeah, high school, I, there's like a in the female, same category. There's
1: a female one, too, yeah, but yeah. I'm sh- I'm sure the male condoms probably more effective. It's more popular. I, okay. I, I just it's not something that even most people discuss, but it empowers females to be able to bring their own tool to the yeah. game if the, the male is unprepared. There's also dental dams, like if you're going to go oral sex wise. Oh, yeah. OK, um, there's just, again, not as popular, but definitely an option. I get barrier is the key. We, we put yeah. condoms kind of in that category. Mm-hmm.
2: This episode of the Unplanned Podcast is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers.
3: Nothing is worse than when there's a blowout and the poop gets all over your kid's clothes, and then it gets on your hands and it gets on the carpet and then on the rug. It's a mess, okay? And bottom line is, you want to make sure you're using some good diapers on your little kiddo. Accidents will happen. It's not a matter of if, but when.
2: There is a heck ton of diapers in this household. We got a lot of them. We've got two babies that just go through them quite a bit. Consider us the official diaper testers for yes. you guys and we can say that huggies is top tier
3: we've had augie in the huggies little movers for a while and we've been blowout Never, free and we've we been used blo- to have
2: so many with griffin
3: i know because we were buying the cheap stuff with griffin we were like oh we can get away with this let's no, just get let's find the cheapest diapers we can find on amazon but on, that's on the thing.
2: huggies are so affordable yeah and they're still so good and that's because huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes and their tushies do too yep huggies best fitting diaper is their little movers with its curved and stretchy fit moms know that there's nothing worse than an ill-fitting diaper dads too give me nuts especially for your active babies i love huggies because i can rely on them to keep my baby covered while he moves around yes they also feel so comfortable in them. There's never any rashing or rubbing around the diapers, and they're very comfy no matter how much they're moving around, and they are moving a lot. They also offer up to 12-hour protection against leaks, which is an absolute game-changer, especially when you're getting longer stretches of sleep. We feel very thankful for Huggies' little movers in the night. Yes, we do. They also have nighttime diapers, which we have as well. Oh,
3: yes. I forgot about those. With Pooh Bear on them. Huggies have the
2: Lion King. Griffins has the Aww, Pooh Bear. Oh,
3: you're right. That's so, so cute. cute.
2: So get your baby's butt into Huggies' Best fitting diaper, Huggies, Little Movers. We got you, baby.
3: Back to the episode. So if I'm a woman that wants to, you know, have some sort of birth control but not mess with my hormones and I'm, I'm afraid of like hormonal methods, like what what should I do? Like what, what would you say to that Yeah, woman? well, first
4: of
1: all, if I, I'll do it like role play almost. If I have a patient that comes in and is worried about hormonal issues with birth control, there has to be some questions down the line of like, what sparked this worry? What exactly are you worried about? And I tried to get down to the foundation of where the worry's coming from. Mm. And if it's based on some sort of false premise or false information, Sometimes just debunking that information and actually showing the correct statistics can help a person change their mind and and say, well, actually, oh, I actually want this. But there are non-hormonal methods. Um, The first one that comes to mind is like the Paragard, the copper IUD, which is something we do in our office quite often. That's a non-hormonal IUD, which is a long-acting, reversible form of contraception with great statistics. Condoms, (laughs) also great in that regard as well. And again, you're getting the extra benefit of STI protection as well.
2: So you don't have any... like staunch beliefs about hormonal birth control being
1: No, absolutely not. Because uh, it's not about having staunch beliefs in healthcare. It's about knowing what the truth is through good quality evidence and then presenting that good quality evidence for the person sitting in front of you. In fact, like the whole art of medicine is taking generalized information and then individualizing it to you if you were my patient. Mm. Because the things that happen on a general level don't necessarily always happen on an individual level. I'll give you an example. So you've heard of people having high blood pressure and lowering it being important, right? To to a healthy range, right? Because if you have elevated blood pressure, that can, like the diagnosis of hypertension, that can raise your risk of having a heart attack and stroke. So we've seen in medical research that if you control someone's blood pressure to a set number from having hypertension to a better number, it reduces their risk of having heart attack or stroke in the general population by like around 30%, let's say. That's great, right? 30% less heart attacks and strokes. But then do you know how many patients I would have to treat to prevent one case of a heart attack and stroke with blood pressure medication? 80. So that means 79 people I'm gonna be giving a medicine Uh. to that's not working. That doesn't mean it's not a valuable medicine. Mm. It still is. It just means that not everyone is always having a heart attack and stroke. That's okay. why I need to give it so many times. Okay. Because in the rare instance, if they do have it, have a chance of having it, that medicine will prevent it from happening.
3: So I did this body scan at the gym a couple months ago, and it freaked me out.
1: Okay, Tell It me said it.
3: My, um, my age that I'd live to is 75. Okay, And I was like, crap, both my grandpa's dead at 75. I'm 25. That's only 50 years away. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking about like my heart health and... I'm wondering, like, is that one of the biggest causes of, of death, I guess? Like, is everybody just
1: dying from a heart attack Yeah, or number a one cause of uh, death in globally and in the United States is heart disease. And what's the best way you can prolong that so you have the longest life possible? I don't only think about the longest life possible as a doctor. I think about length of life, but also quality of life, right? Okay. I don't want to just extend your life indefinitely because that's also not always the healthiest thing to do and Mm -hmm. it's not something you may want to do. So I think about quality of life and length of life. And the way that we think about heart disease is maintaining a healthy lifestyle because lifestyle modifications are the greatest drivers of heart disease. So if we control our cholesterol numbers, if we control our blood pressure numbers, when I say control, I mean keeping it in a healthy range. If we get the correct number hours of sleep for our age group, if we focus on our mental health, if we get our recommended 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise in a week, those things are gonna lead you to have the healthiest outcomes. Then, if we did something imperfect, which we do as humans, we may have slightly higher cholesterol because of our diets or our Mm -hmm. lifestyles, or maybe um, our blood pressure is a little elevated because we are living stressful lives or we have a genetic condition, then having a healthy relationship with your primary care doctor to see where medicines can come in and help mitigate some of that risk as well, that's gonna give you the best chance of having a a heart healthy lifestyle. Hmm. Which is more important, diet or exercise? I would say it depends for what is number one, but I probably would lean it towards diet. So for example, if you're trying to lose weight, exercise is almost meaningless. You're kidding. Yes, it's important, but diet is gonna get you majority of the way there. Because in order to burn, enough calories to counter overeating let's say a thousand calories even you need to like have a a sprint workout for an hour and no one's exercising that much no so like when most people exercise they get on the treadmill for 20 30 minutes they'll burn like three 400 calories that's one snickers bar what how does okay so that's why i'm saying diet is way more important because it's a lot easier to overeat calories than it is to burn calories off
2: that makes sense just wow. from
1: like the, the I, keeping everything else excluded i'm shocked because okay so for instance abby's 5
3: months postpartum she mm-hmm. looks incredible And she works out five days a week, which like to me that motivates me to get my butt to the gym because like I normally wouldn't do that. And I'm like, my wife works out so much, like I can't be a lazy bum and just sit back and do nothing. It's
2: okay, Matt. You can get fat. (laughs)
3: No, she tells me I'm like, I don't want to be fat. Like I I I want to look good for you. I'm like, I want to look good for you. That's great that you guys are motivating (laughs) each other with. But she, no, she's so motivating, and I'm like, I have attributed her looking so
1: good because she works out so much, and I. But you're saying it's really more more diet well it's more but it's not either or i don't okay. think that's like a kind of a false dichotomy i think you should do both because i've said this before if i was to take all the benefits that you get from exercise and put in a pill i'd be a trillionaire right now richest person on earth because there's so many benefits to exercise outside of weight loss outside of strength gains it helps your sex life it helps your mental state it helps maintain social bonds because you work out together mm-hmm. like all of those things, if I could take all those benefits and put them into something that you could just take, oh, my God, it's incredible. I feel mm. like people do that.
3: I, I feel like there's always ads on social media. Oh, yeah. like, oh just eat the. Have you seen those where it's like, what's better, this cheeseburger yeah. or this salad? Yeah. Actually, it's the cheeseburger because yeah. it's
1: like less calories or something. And I'm like, what? Like, that doesn't really make sense. It's, it's a complete fabrication of truth. And it just shows that someone is not really well-versed in the science. I actually just had a doctor on my podcast, and he was trying to equate a Hershey's bar with eating grapes. And he's like, why eat grapes? They're sugar bombs. Might as well eat a Hershey's bar. And that cannot be further from the truth, because that sort of thinking just compares the sugar content in the two things. Mm -hmm. But just because two things have the same sugar content, it doesn't mean they have the same impact on your health. Grapes have fiber. Chocolate doesn't. Grapes have vitamins, minerals, valuable nutrients that are healthy for you that chocolate doesn't have, especially milk chocolate. So to compare the two just on one variable is really just like hyper zooming in and not thinking about the entire picture. It's like focusing and saying, um, you know, you shouldn't run because sometimes you may pull a muscle. Mm. Well, yeah, you may pull a muscle, but what about all the other benefits that you're neglecting? So it's not a complete picture of what's going on. And fun fact, like Sam behind the camera here who works with me, he doesn't have a medical (laughs) background, but he has a lot of medical curiosity. And he came onto the channel and was like, Mike, why don't we do some stuff where you can go into fast food places and you could rank things from healthiest to least? And I struggle with that concept. Because it's very difficult to make accurate comparisons where you don't mislead people. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm. And
1: some people say, oh, it's not a big deal, Hershey's and, uh, and uh, grape. Like, it's not that big of a deal. I think it leads people to start having an unhealthy relationship with food. And I feel like that's the worst form of diet culture that exists Mm -hmm. you mentioned fast food and it got me thinking because
3: we eat out a lot and we're always on the road and always filming podcasts in other cities and so i'm always trying to figure out what's the like the healthiest thing i can get when i eat fast food because i want to put good things in my body (laughs) and so i like look to chipotle i'm like chipotle has to be healthy right like they make everything fresh they make it same day And for the most part, it looks pretty good. But then I got online and looked at the sodium content, and I was like, holy crap. It's like your daily value of sodium in one meal, if not more. So I'm curious, where
1: should we go eat when we're when we're on the road and and do you think chipotle is healthy <laughs> well I love chipotle so like I'm biased in that regard so I'm gonna point that out uh, I think it's yummy but you do have to watch your salt intake especially those who are struggling with heart disease because salt one of its unintended consequences an overconsumption of salt can actually raise your blood pressure mm-hmm. and blood pressure makes your heart have to work harder to pump against that pressure which can cause actual physical changes of your heart making it less effective a buildup of fluid again this isn't people who have heart Disease um, for the average person. If you're athletic and you're consuming enough water, and there's nothing else going on, having a little bit more sodium, your kidneys will function well and be fine. Okay. So I don't like for myself worry about that too much. And even in Chipotle, if you modify your bowl, you can moderate your salt intake. Okay. It's just really when you're thinking about seasoning and they're seasoning meat, like you'll see chefs, like famous chefs on YouTube, and you watch their preparation of meat. I mean, they're just, they're like, salt makes everything taste better. And I cringe watching because I'm like, there's no nutrition label on this. So I can't imagine how much salt is oh, in this meal. Oh my gosh. So when you eat at of restaurants, you're, you're likely getting salt bombs because they know it makes things taste a lot better, even when they're cooking maybe is not spectacular.
3: So mm. if I'm eating plenty, if I'm drinking plenty of water and working
1: out, let's say three days a week, yeah. is it okay if I have Chipotle every day? Yeah. I mean, if, if like you have to look at your macros, like what else are you eating in the okay. day? Because if you're eating Chipotle during the day, but then you're having cold cuts at night, things that are high in salt as well, Mm. like maybe not ideal. But I would never say it's terrible. You know what I'm saying? Because this is where another thing podcast hosts and medical gurus online get wrong. They start focusing on one factor and making it sound like that's the thing that's gonna destroy your life. Mm. Or on the other way, like ice baths are gonna make you function so much better. What they fail to realize is life is so multifactorial Like your mood and whether or not someone is mean to you on the street or whether or not you get into a car accident on your Uber ride home has a way bigger impact on your health than whether or not you had a Chipotle bowl that day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I try and get people out of this thing of over focus, over worry, because that anxiety surrounding the Chipotle bowl will likely be more unhealthy than Chipotle bowl,
2: unless Mm -hmm. you
1: have a pre-existing medical condition, Mm. of course. You see how doctors are annoying and how they answer questions? No, I
2: appreciate that perspective, though, because I think it's so easy on social media, especially, like, all my stuff recently has been breastfeeding and babies and Mm -hmm. stuff, and it just, it's, like, fear-mongering in a way, like, I don't know, making you, like, afraid of medical intervention or, like, this is the only way to do it or, like, we even got criticism about our own Oh, experience. tell me what the
1: criticism was.
2: I don't know. I had a C-section, and okay. then people were oh, like, no, yeah. that's like, you can't, like, C-section is like the absolute worst. You have to avoid it at all costs. And
1: you had the c C-section because you were worried about shoulder dystocia from the yeah. first pregnancy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's an important topic to talk about. Uh, shoulder dystocia is an emergency where, despite having the head come out, the shoulders essentially get stuck in the birth canal. And that creates risk for brachial plexus injury, which is the nerve that supplies the rest of the arm. Um, It can actually cause damage to the mother as well. So lots of issues can come, actually, like fetal demise and and issues with the fetus itself or the baby, and um, it's an emergency. So we need to act quickly in those scenarios. And when we think about what raises risk of that, uh, the biggest risk factor is the size of the baby. Having the baby be over eight pounds, 13 ounces officially puts you at the risk for that. The Mm -hmm. medical definition of that is fetal macrosomia, having a large baby, what predisposes you to have a large baby is having diabetes, gestational diabetes while pregnant, that can create uh, a larger baby. Um, Also, use of forceps, vacuum assisted delivery, things that we use to help navigate uh, a difficult delivery can actually raise the risk of shoulder dystocia. Um, And in some instances, we have to do a C section to prevent that from happening. I'm curious. In your case, was your first baby's weight high?
2: He wasn't. He was like eight four.
1: Okay, yeah. And Close. then
2: our doctor said, like, if he was, if our um, our second second was baby was bigger. measuring any bigger, she would feel like a little bit worried about like not doing a C section. And he was eight fourteen at 39 weeks. Yeah, so, so then
1: fetal macrosomia. Okay. Yeah. So
2: she was like, I feel comfortable, and also even just having my first a week early like at 39 weeks mm-hmm. that got criticism too so it's just it's also it's yeah so, so getting
1: oxytocin or tosin during uh, pregnancy increases risk of cerebral dystocia as well
2: Ooh. so then maybe that's why i don't well, know well again yeah. it's not
1: definitely why remember multifactorial a lot yeah. of things happening in those situations and for people criticizing you is a little ridiculous because they don't know the exact medical circumstance and medicine is imperfect science Mm-hmm. So when we recommend things, it's not with, this is definitely the right move. There's some cases where it's like, no, 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 absolutely contraindicated. Absolute contraindication is like, you never do this in this scenario. But in that scenario, you're weighing pros, you're weighing cons, you're thinking about the risks, the benefits. During a stressful situation, you're letting a doctor help you make the best decision. I don't think anyone can judge you for that unless they were there.
2: Thank you to Haya for sponsoring today's episode. Are you okay over there? I, I
1: was just resituating myself.
2: Okay. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise, you guys. They are filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should never eat. Honestly, it has been. A growing stressor of mine How much sugar is packed into products Designed for children Like why are they putting it in vitamins That's supposed to be healthy for them And then they're packing it with sugar
3: Kids love sweet stuff man They really do
2: And it's not good for them It's not <laughs> Having that much sugar is definitely not okay And that's why Haya was created The pediatrician approved Super powered chewable vitamin Haya fills in the most common gaps In modern children's diets To provide the full body nourishment That our kids need With a yummy taste that they love as well Aww. It's formulated with the help of nutrition. Nutritional experts. Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D. B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. Honestly, the list goes on. And it's really cute because Haya comes with a reusable bottle. It's a really adorable little yellow bottle and then they come with a sticker pack for your kid to decorate them. So taking their vitamins is not like something they dread. It tastes good and it's fun because they designed their own little bottle of Haya. It can become a great ritual to have with your children.
3: I can't believe we're already getting to the stage where our kids are playing with stickers and
2: i know i'm so excited for all the little kids arts and crafts yeah little hyah bottle will be number one yep we've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin receive 50 off your first order to claim this deal you must go to hyahhealth.com unplanned this deal is not available on their regular website go to h-i-y-a-h-e-a-l-t-h dot com unplanned and get your kids in the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults
3: back to the episode
2: Yeah, I just, I really trust our doctor, so I was like, I'm not going to, like, bring her on and have her talk, but, like, I just really trusted her, and, like, her advice was have him at 39 weeks and then do a C-section, and it was great. Honestly, I preferred the (laughs) (laughs) C-section, and so I, I was like, I'll do that again if I have to. It was
3: crazy how different it was, like, because... The C-section recovery obviously was so... Like, seeing you go through that, I hated it. Because, like, oh, yeah, you were, in, easy you were in a lot of pain. Your scar still hurts right now. Mm.
1: Is yeah. that normal for women to still feel... Can, all like, scars could potentially uh, cause harm... Not harm, pain long-term. Okay. Um, but uh, it depends. Every person will react differently. Cause, yeah, because
3: Abby, like, seeing her... The, the recovery was very long from a C-section. Yeah. But then with the birth, it was, like, all at once, very, very intense... So much blood everywhere. It was crazy. <laughs> it was like a war scene. I think I that's did.
2: more traumatized from it than me.
3: Well, I think what I realized too, talking to other people that have babies, like everyone, everyone's experience is completely different. Oh, yeah. And so our experience, I think just with the nature of like, the the w- the person that you are and your your body shape and the size of our babies and so many other factors like it seemed like ours just tended to be more on the very intense side for birth and then we know women that just like the baby came right out and yeah. it was just like very calm and they calm. Were at their
2: house and, and it was peaceful
3: and the epidural was like fully and like fully going and they didn't or, really yeah. feel much and so it's just like you hear of these like really peaceful births and these like very traumatic like the baby
1: stuck dad out of the way and like that's what that was ours
4: so <laughs> that
2: was our
1: <laughs> yeah <wonderful> all that <laughs> happened and that's why, like home births as a topic, has come up a lot in the healthcare community, and yeah. folks are kind of very polarized by the subject. What what do what have you guys heard? I'm curious.
3: Abby, take this one. I'm, I uh, feel like you have strong opinions. What on have that. I heard? Like oh, or, on home I have births. Strong opi-
2: for me, I would be like absolutely not. I'd be way more scared at home without doctors present yeah. than like if I was like in a medical. Same. If, setting. if we would have had
3: the shoulder dystocia at home, I would have been. Terrified. I also would
2: not want to just be alone with you.
1: <laughs> well, it's not. Ideally, it's not alone.
4: With yeah.
3: you.
1: home birth is not home with yeah, okay, hubby. that's true. It's not hubby birth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know people that have done that though. I'm well, like, yeah, your I husband. Mean, what?
1: That's that's not recommended.
2: I don't trust this guy. H-
1: non medical hubby birth is not something that's. I would consider as a proper home
3: birth by right. medical standards. We have a friend that told us about one of their friends um, that had their baby just in a hospital room. They didn't even tell the hospital. No, no, and they no just not brought, hospital.
2: Hotel oh, I'm, room. I'm sorry, hotel room. Hotel. They, booked a hotel. they booked
3: a hotel room. This was on... We used to live in Hawaii <laughs> on the North Shore, which is like... I think we were kind of far from a hospital. All of our friends had drive to drive into town 45 minutes to go to the yeah. closest hospital. But they uh, have- this girl, like, after college, like, rented out this... Or just booked the hotel. And I guess didn't say anything. Brought her, like, her... Pool or whatever, blow oh up pool my God. and had
1: the baby in the in the um hotel room. Wow. I mean, that's like, to me, that like springs in my mind is like people using Ubers as ambulance rides because our healthcare system is so messed up that ambulances are so expensive, so people oh. are Ubering their medical emergencies. That's and actually have To put out a statement and they stop using Uber <laughs> as a form of medical transportation. As terrible as that is, this
2: Uber driver is just not prepared. Do they, yeah, do they
1: get there faster than actual? ambulances? I mean, I don't know, but it's not safe. Obviously, we wouldn't yeah. recommend that because Uber drivers are focused on driving and not delivering medical care so how much that's, is an
2: ambulance
1: it could be really expensive like the ranges is like 500 to 1800 dollars. like it, it could be really and expensive. you have to
3: pay that it's not like you can just yeah oh, I mean, sorry
1: have to pay is like
3: oh okay
1: yeah i mean you have to pay it okay
3: <laughs> yeah that's a lot of. i money. mean
1: insurance should cover it but
3: one time when we used to, we used to work, uh, we worked at a pizza restaurant in college and this guy came in. He was like, call an ambulance. Like, I'm not feeling well. And I was like, so scared. I was like, I called 911 right away. But I was wondering, like, did he come into the store because he was hoping the payment would fall on the pizza restaurant or would it still fall on, on him?
1: No, it would still fall on him. Okay. The only situation where like the pizza place gets involved is if there was an injury or okay. illness due to some negligence or yeah, their private property
3: and he just came off the street but he he looked like he the way he appeared at least i thought he probably had a phone so i was like i wonder why he wants us to call but maybe he just didn't have his phone yeah. on him or something um but that's that's so interesting i did yeah. not
1: realize people were, were Wait, i want to
2: know your thoughts on home birth um
1: my thoughts again are going to be very nuanced i won't give a good or bad answer on it for good quality research what we've seen is that in areas where there is already a system set up for home births either midwives doulas some kind of advanced practitioners perhaps Mm -hmm. that are there to help guide the process in a low-risk pregnancy in those situations three things happen risk-wise number one is you have a decreased risk of medical intervention meaning that kind of makes sense right if you're not in a hospital you're less likely to get forceps you're less likely to use vacuums because you're you're in a hospital uh second is there's less injuries to, slightly, to the birthing person. So mothers are less likely to have third-degree tears, et cetera. And then the final one is either equal or slightly higher risk of neonatal mortality. Like the baby's Uh. dying. Oh, really? Either equal risk or slightly higher.
4: Mm.
1: So... People. But there's a lot of factors here okay it has to be follow all those categories of like the a low risk pregnancy um having uh, a system in place that is not just dad delivering the baby yeah. you have a trained professional there you have a plan on what to do if there's a complication because when they look at the research there there is a significant percentage in the double digits of people having to go to the hospital mm. either mid-pregnancy or post-pregnancy so those things do happen I think
3: there was another YouTube couple that wanted to have a home birth, and then they weren't able I think to. It happens a and lot. they had to go have a C section. So in the so, United States, it's really
1: yeah. rare. The percentage is like one percent of of births are home births. In the Netherlands, I believe it's the highest, uh, to the tune of like fourteen percent. Oh wow! Our home births, yeah.
3: And they just have a midwife there? Is that typically what someone has with with a home birth?
1: Yeah, and they have that plan in place of what to do if things get complicated, someone well-experienced. There's a state in the United States that has, I forget which one, that has a really good system in place already for home births, and they see, obviously, better outcomes than all the other states Mm -hmm. because they have the system in Mm -hmm. place.
3: Yeah, I can see i would be very comfortable to be in your own home, to have that peace and not be in some... You know, for some people, I think hospitals can be scary. And so yeah. just getting to, yeah, give birth at your home. I can see the appeal of that for sure, especially if you have a low risk pregnancy and your doctor has told you that, yeah, you're low risk. So Yeah,
1: I think that's like the, the biggest takeaway for folks is if you're considering it, discuss it with your doctor and don't just ask your doctor, do you recommend this? Mm-hmm. If you want to ask that, that's fine. But then ask why or why not? Like, allow them to state their reasons of concern. Well, you're not totally low risk. You have problem X, Y, and Z, or I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. Or, yes, I am fine with this because you follow all the protocols that the guidelines set forward Mm -hmm. and that you are low risk and you have this plan in place. So, like, always ask one question, but then with follow-ups intended as well for doctors.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you feel like a lot of the criticisms coming at doctors, like, on social media like I feel like I hear a lot that it's like doctors are just trying to make money mm-hmm. like they're just trying to like that they don't want you to have home births because they can charge you at the hospital
1: <laughs> yeah no that's like a, a little bit of a conspiracy yeah um in general doctors like I guess more so before but now are still people are talking about like money hungry pharma this and that and I always see the hypocrisy in those statements because the people who are usually saying that are selling you something also, Mm. like some miracle supplement where it's also a billion dollar industry. So they're like, don't trust pharma because they're making money off you. It's like, but you're making millions and billions off me too. So let's neglect those points and then look at the other stuff yeah exactly <laughs> because it's like well pharma also has to prove wait did you guys have an essential oils
3: I, I saw your video you were like reacting to people using essential oils and it was like oh, this yeah. girl like like rubbing it on her forehead and it's like oh here's some and they're like just like just coating this girl in essential oils yeah. and your reaction was hilarious <laughs> I mean it's just
1: it's, it's so ridiculous because they don't really care about you when they're making those recommendations because look do I think essential oils or like these types of I don't even know what to call it, like natural methods. Natural is mm-hmm. not even a great word because natural doesn't mean safe. But um, these low-risk tools can be used in healthcare. I think there are places for them. So a prime example of that is, let's say a patient comes in with a viral infection. And I tell them, look, we can't use antibiotics here because you have a virus. Uh, you really got to just rest, um, hydrate well, and heal up by eating fruits, vegetables, all that stuff. If they have a strong belief that smelling orange essential oils is gonna help them. Odds are, because they have that belief, it will help. Yeah, Because the placebo effect is real. That's crazy. So why the heck would I, Like, it's not like that's hurting them. There's no, like, sniff sniff away. Sniff (laughs) away. Because then where I do step in is where they say, oh, essential oils will help control your blood sugar if you're diabetic. And that person ends up in a diabetic coma Mm. from DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, and now that person dies because of this belief in essential that's where I step in yeah but if it's low risk if it's for comfort if for symptom control mental health support please by all means do it that is crazy
3: I was actually about to ask that about the placebo effect because there has to be research that backs that up like when you when you believe something oh yeah I'm sure (laughs) Abby I feel like the placebo (laughs) effect works wonders on you
0: (laughs) my mind no
3: Abby when she was a kid um what's it called again where you couldn't sleep
2: I had insomnia like for a whole summer as a kid and i would literally stay up if it felt like all night i Mm -hmm. probably fell asleep obviously at some point and my mom was like abby i have this Perfect sleeping pill, and it'll make you fall asleep tonight. After like a couple months of this, it was a Tic Tac. I found out like seven years later. Well, it was delicious, I fell asleep I'm sure. that night. I couldn't tell. I took it like a pill. I wouldn't.
1: Oh, you you swallowed it. I she swallowed it was a it. pill. That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna do the doctor thing and warn you, like you should never put a sucky candy in before you go to sleep because if you fall asleep, you could choke on it.
2: But mm. you swallowed it. So swallowed okay. it like a pill, and well, yeah. then I fell asleep. It was her insomnia
3: that pills that were <laughs> given to her by the doctor. But that it, it,
1: placebo effect works thirty percent of the time. Crazy. So (laughs) it has a 30% efficacy rate. That's why, when we test medications and things to see if they actually work, we do something called a randomized double-blinded study. Randomized, controlled, double-blinded study. What does that mean? First of all, you don't want to have a selection bias where like people are volunteering for the treatment because odds are if they're volunteering for it, they're excited about it, it's going to work better. Mm. So you got to randomize the population Mm. so it works on anybody, not just this specific set of population. So first of all, you randomize it. Then when you control it, that means you tested it against placebo. So I don't just say, does... Uh, acetaminophen, which is the active ingredient of Tylenol, does this work in reducing pain? I say, how well does it work in reducing pain compared to giving you a pill that looks like Tylenol but isn't Tylenol? That is just nothing, it's a sugar pill. Then we see, does it truly work? Because when I say that ending statement, the double blinded, the researchers don't know which is the actual Tylenol pill that has the active medication and the participants don't know. So they're both blinded. And in the end, we open it up and we see, Well, which group had pain control? And we'll compare which one actually reduced pain. So if it's placebo, then we know Tylenol doesn't work for that. Well, Uh. we actually do know, but in this scenario.
3: I love that so much. Because I feel like bias plays into everything in our world. And so when there's just strict data behind stuff like that, and no bias, no, oh, I feel this way, so I think it's true. Like, I love that that's how our medical system or whatever. Well, we try our best.
1: I wouldn't say we have no bias. That would be okay. giving us too much credit. Yeah. We just try our best to be as hyper aware of all the bias that can exist and take that to, into consideration. There's even some really like cool biases that I've studied that I've talked about on the channel. Like you've heard of people saying... Uh, oh, the 105-year-old is here today to tell us the one secret that has allowed them to live longer. You know, that actually is a bias. There's a name for it. It's called survivorship bias. Yep. And we think that because this person lived to 105, they must have the key. Whereas all their friends that did the same thing all didn't live to 105. And that's the huge majority of them. Yep. So that's odds are not the secret. And there's a, a cool study that actually tested this using, I believe it was Oscar winners. Have you heard about this? Uh-uh. No. It's such a fun one. So basically what they tested was there was a theory that Oscar liver uh, Oscar winners live longer than those who don't win an Oscar. And they tested this and it was true. Those who won the Oscars live longer on average than their colleagues that didn't win Oscars. So They were like, oh my God, it's the Oscars effect. Look at that. Like if you win an award, you get it. Can you guys guess why that's complete BS? Uh, and why me. that's survivorship bias?
3: Um, I
1: don't know.
2: <laughs> I don't see... Is that just like correlation does not... Do
1: they, oh, that's prove, a cool one. Okay. Well, no, you were <laughs> going to say correlation does not equal causation. Yeah. That's true. So just because two events happen at the same time doesn't mean they cause each other to happen at the same time. Yeah. So frequently in the summer, we have a lot more ice cream sales, right? Because people eat ice cream in the summer. There's also more shark attacks because people go in the water. Mm. So... Because there are more shark attacks doesn't mean that there's more ice cream sales, but they're both correlated. They don't cause each other to happen. So it's important we always think about that in medicine, but that's not the answer to
3: this. Thank you to Liquid IV for sponsoring this portion of today's episode. We had a debate the other day about which Liquid IV flavor was the best, and you guys in the comments were saying, no, it's this one. No, it's this one. But I'm proud to announce that we actually found out it's peach. It's actually peach, which is super... I love the peach. It's the best
2: flavor. That one's sugar-free too, which is really good, but I actually like the sugar-free grape one honestly all of the liquid iv flavors are so good if you don't know what liquid iv is it's basically it's a packet that you pour into 16 ounces of water or however much you want i put in 40 ounces actually because i just like it's still pretty strong not only do they taste good they're very hydrating it gives you three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink and It's just in a little packet, so easy to travel with. Throw it in your diaper bag. Throw it in your purse. Heck, throw it in your little Lulu fanny pack.
4: Yeah. I have some That's what you do. I do. I
2: see you do that. I have a liquid IV literally every single day. And they have eight vitamins and nutrients. They're non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. No artificial sweeteners. And yeah, like I said, I love the sugar-free option. But I also like all the other options as well. It's just nice to have an option that doesn't have But peach
3: is the best flavor. It's a fact.
2: And so is green grape. And they're very convenient. Delicious flavors. And honestly, I think they're amazing, especially if you're nursing. I think it keeps my milk supply up, so that's why I always throw them in.
3: And what's the quote? It's like it's more hydrating than water alone. That, they're very hydrating. Yeah.
2: Let's just say that.
3: That's why it's called Liquid IV.
2: And they're also great if you've had a crazy weekend.
3: Yeah, my brother told me that. He said that he'll have friends that will have a crazy party night. Woo! And then the next day, they're, yeah. they're down in some Liquid IV. I've
2: heard they're great for that as well. <laughs> yeah. Weekends are for going wild. Have a game plan for Monday with Liquid IV. Grab your Liquid IV hydrate multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code unplanned at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code unplanned at liquidiv.com.
1: Can you buy some more? Order now. (laughs) Okay. And back to the episode. Uh, (laughs) This is a form of survivorship (laughs) bias called immortality bias because let's think about this rationally. Most people who win Oscars don't win them early in life. They usually win them later in life. Mm -hmm. So now you have to take into consideration, on average, if let's say they were 40 years old when they won the Oscar, what about the 40 years of life that they all lived without winning an Oscar? Yeah. So once you control for that 40 years of life that both people lived without Oscars, and then they actually won their Oscar, did that length of their life be is longer than the people who didn't win an Oscar? The answer is no.
4: Mm. Oh,
3: okay. That makes a lot more sense So it, now.
1: it was just like uh, a bias in that nature of uh, of the immortality. Not taking into consideration yeah. the life Hilarious. that they live up until the event that we're studying. You,
3: you mentioned Big Pharma earlier. And I heard from somebody once who was like, yeah, Big Pharma already has the, the cure to cancer. Yeah. And they're just holding it back because of money. And I'm really curious what your take is on that. Because like, to me, I was like, oh, that seems honestly like somewhat logical. I know like Big Pharma makes a freaking crap ton of money. Yeah. So what, is there any
1: truth in that? Well, let's talk about it non-medically, because I think this is the best way to talk about okay. it. Um, I'm going to ask this to you, and I feel like you'll be a better example than him in this scenario. If a lot of friends of yours that you're gossiping about, your friend Becky, if a lot of them know the secret, how long is that secret going to stay a secret? Never. Right? Because <laughs> the more people that know a secret, the less likely it's a secret. So the idea that all of the pharmaceutical industry which is thousands tens of thousands of employees are holding on to this secret because to develop a cancer cure t- requires tens of thousands of laborers
4: mm-hmm.
1: are holding this secret what are the odds are that this thing is staying a secret? Mm-hmm. first of all already on the surface i'm very skeptical that that's the mm-hmm. case and then what did you just say pharma's after what money Oh my God, they don't want money? <laughs> if you so create a cancer cure, do you know how much money you'll have? Trillions. Trillions. So like, uh, so they're anti-making yeah. money. They're the world's most adept people at keeping secrets. Like now we're getting into sci-fi conspiracy territory right. and yeah. just forgetting the medical science of it all. It's ridiculous. Um, and then when we think about the medical science of it all, uh, I think about when we fix one problem in healthcare, we create another. So for example, we're helping people live longer than they ever lived before, if we look at you know, 100 years ago, right? We've prolonged life because of some very basic things like antibiotics, sanitation, but also some medical breakthroughs, treatments of certain cancers, uh, viral infections, et cetera, et cetera. So we've done a good job prolonging life. But now what's happening? We're having a spike in neurological degenerative diseases because the brain wasn't meant to live so long Mm. so that while people are living longer they're developing degenerative diseases where because they're living so long there's a whole new crop of diseases that are starting to Mm spike so in medicine it's always like whack-a-mole you fix one problem you create Mm. another you fix one that's why hyper optimization doesn't work in healthcare. when someone's like i can give you this thing and it's gonna make your hormones so much better It's like, well, your hormones need to be just right, not better. Mm -hmm. If you go the other end of the hormones, you're going to have all these negative effects. Because when you whack them all one side, something pops up on the other. Mm -hmm. So ideally, it's like you keep it in a balance. So the idea that if they cure cancer, they're going to be broke afterwards is ridiculous. Because we'll have a bunch of other medical conditions that they're going to need to fix. Mm -hmm. So for those three reasons, I think the whole conspiracy is BS.
2: Yeah.
3: So I've been, you mentioned ice baths earlier. And I've been doing ice baths recently. And I I actually did a whole week. (laughs) I did a whole week. (laughs) i i did a whole week where i ice bathed and then worked out and then a couple of the days some of the days the freaking gym had the sauna closed i was so upset oh, okay. but i did i did ice bath gym sauna okay and i'm pretty sure i have adhd i haven't been diagnosed i'm actually currently getting diagnosed by a doctor abby he just
2: put off his pat next I, to appointment.
3: Okay. i have a theory that everybody with adhd doesn't even get diagnosed because abby had it set up the appointment for me i felt bad <laughs> I was true. like,
2: it's actually not for me it's for my husband i'm not forcing him to do this he asked me to make this appointment he just might have adhd and can't do it
3: the craziest thing is that week where i was cold plunge gym sauna i had the best focus that i've had in like years and i was like is there some sort you're talking about like balance of hormones is there something to do with you know cold plunging working out sauna that helps your body you know fix whatever's wrong up here or help my adhd get into check and and help me focus because i was just like i felt like i was i was killing it i was like man this week is awesome like i felt on top of it
1: <laughs> okay well we
2: have,
1: we have there's a lot to unpack here so first this is happening to you not something we see with the general population okay like I'm not going to say like, because this happened to you, I'm going to recommend this as a form of ADHD treatment, okay. right? So like generalizable, no. Did it work for you? It sounds like it did. And the harms of continuing it are really little. So I would encourage you to keep doing it. Yeah. Number one, That's, that would be my first take as a doctor. Um, number two, exercise, great stuff. Sauna, great stuff. Ice baths, eh, whatever. You could take a cold shower, probably get the same benefit. And the benefits are really, really small. Really? But now... Keeping a routine where you're doing the same three things every day, you're getting a lot of benefit from the exercise, you're getting a lot of benefit from the sauna, from heating your body up, having that cycle of things happening to your body. Is that helping you maintain some sort of order that is helping you with your mental health balance? Totally reasonable, but again, not generalizable to the general public. So you think
3: the the whole ice bath trend is BS?
1: I think it's BS because it's over-promising, things that are untrue. The mm. research on it is so weak for the things that it does potentially do, number one. Number two, we don't know how long those effects actually stay. So for example, you take people who have never taken an ice bath, you put them in the ice bath and you see certain markers in their blood change and you say, look what amazing the ice bath is. But will those markers stay a year down the line if you're still doing it? No one really knows. And what i know about the human body is that it adapts really well so the benefit you get from that initially mm-hmm. is going to be very different than the benefit you're going to get for a year down the line oh
3: i have noticed that so the first time i did an ice bath i was shivering i was yeah. going i like couldn't catch my breath i thought i was gonna pass out yeah because i i went in my buddy's tub it was 32.7 degrees and
1: frigid like and I did can it for a whole three minutes. Can that be bad for
2: your heart? Yeah like, yeah my, sure. Oh wait oh can be okay, bad for you. that's why I told you no, I
1: mean you you're young and me. healthy so like okay lower risk for you but it is it's a huge stress on your heart especially really people doing it who are older like well, I, my, get I can't feel
3: my fingers after three minutes it's funny because like i'll uh, my my toddler loves like when we're taking baths and stuff or when i give him a bath i'll be like cold water woo, and he like laughs so i, I go cold hands and i go woo, and he starts giggling because my hands are freezing cold yeah. after the ice bath um so i that,
2: told you it was bad for my heart because we were pushing uh, each other I mean, we were pushing each other in the pool and i was like matt i Abby's, literally can't catch my breath and i have a really fast heart rate oh already gosh. i was like you're probably gonna send me over 200 just by pushing me in the we, pool
3: we did this tiktok trend where you like asked each other questions and pushed each other in the pool but that pool was 50 degrees it wasn't it was like 30. Was pretty, it wasn't 32.7 <laughs> was
1: but and um, all the protocols by the way where it's like you have to spend this many minutes this the temperature exactly it's like
3: no Okay, so what about, like, I'm sure you've heard of Huber- Huberman <laughs> Lab and, like, these guys who talk, mm-hmm. like, uh, Joe Rogan has been, been promoting ice baths, mm-hmm. so you think, wh- where are they getting all this research from?
1: I think that they get, they're, they're, they're very excited about preliminary research, uh, and okay. they're functioning in a field that is not the field that I function in. I see patients that have real-world problems, they can't spend $5,000 on an ice plunge bath, From 10x health like these are not realistic situations and they also have serious problems they have incredibly high blood pressure they have incredibly high cholesterol they have incredibly high diabetes numbers blood sugars um they're not exercising they're sedentary so to talk to them about ice baths is frankly a waste of time and doing them a disservice because Actually, BioLane, Lane Lane Norton, said this really well on my podcast the other day. If you're trying to pick up as much weight as possible in the form of boulders, would you try and pick up a big boulder and then drop it to pick up little pebbles? No. You take the biggest boulder, which is the biggest effect. So you think about all those things we discussed earlier, getting your 150 minutes of exercise, the diet, the sleep, the mental health, which is already a heavy boulder to carry. It's a Mm -hmm. lot of things to do. And then maybe you'll throw in a little pebble of the ice bath. Maybe you'll throw in the pebble of the sauna. But at the end of the day, they're pebbles. So when people put such an emphasis on pebbles, come on, let's be realistic about what's happening and what added benefit you're actually giving people because it feels disconnected from how well Mm -hmm. we're promoting it. Mm. And frankly, I think the big popularity for the cold plunges came from cryotherapy centers. uh, When people used to do cryo, remember that thing was really hot for a while? Mm -hmm. And then they realized that they're getting people way too cold. it it was actually creating some harms in people because they were getting too cold. It was also really expensive to maintain. And they said, wow, we can get a lot of the same benefits by putting people into a tub and just sell them the tub instead. Mm. So they started doing that. But just take a cold shower. Like that's the thing. The cold shower (laughs) is going to do the same thing
3: with the travel we've been doing, I've been taking cold showers like here in New York and then back home in St. Louis. And the water isn't that cold in Phoenix where we live, but like when I'm in New York or (laughs) St. Louis, the water is frigid. Like Mm -hmm. it takes my breath away when it goes in my head. Cause my head doesn't go under when I do a cold plunge, but when I'm in the shower, it goes on my head. Yeah. It's, it's unreal. I'm like, this is like 33 degree water right now. I am about <laughs> it to freeze. Like it, it. it feels like. It. Uh, okay. I was not expecting that. I thought you were going to be like, there are so many health benefits. No, I can't. Everyone should cold plunge. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what, okay. Why is sauna? Why is the sauna different? Is there more research behind the sauna?
1: Well, let me just, uh, before we move off the cold plunge thing, just tell you something interesting. Um, you know how people, if they have a fever, they're like, oh, go into a, a cold bath. It's going to do something. You don't need to go into a cold bath to lower your temperature. Just go into a room temperature bath. Because, what is room temperature?
2: Cooler than your body temperature.
1: Genius. That's why, again,
2: people are just genius. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're like, go into the freezing water and cool
4: It's
1: like, you're going to put the poor kid into shock. Like. And again, I wouldn't even recommend going into a tub to lower your temperature. It's like, not really necessary. Uh, we also are very fever phobic as a society. Really? which is kind of strange, too, because fevers carry benefits.
2: Really? I feel afraid of fevers. Actually?
1: Yeah. What? What's like, the if benefit? If my kid has
2: a fever, I'm terrified.
1: What's the benefit of having a fever? In, in a really young child, that's a different story. But for like a healthy adult, if you're sick with a virus and your temperature goes up to 100 or 101, and you have no other medical conditions, that's your body fighting off the infection. And by lowering the fever, you're actually weakening your body's ability to fight off the infection. Mm. Where we've actually seen the research that when you allow a fever to to be, the infection goes away sooner, you have symptoms for less period of time, you're infectious, meaning spreading to other people for a shorter period of time. That back in the day before we had antibiotics, we used to uh, find that you could treat syphilis by giving people malaria, because we had a cure for malaria, and get their fevers real high with the malaria. Wow. That would in in, in fix their syphilis infection, and then you could treat their malaria and That's they'd feel crazy. better. So fevers are actually like a survival thing. We 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 you, Fevers are a benefit. So, so many times I have to tell my patients, like, just because you're a little warm doesn't mean you need to rush to take an antipyretica, anti-fever medication. Mm. You Again. are so smart. <laughs> no, no, no. no this is, not, the people that are on social media that are are good at medical media are oftentimes people that have left the medical field and want to just, like usually sell out or make some money but I'm like excited about the actual medicine and I've gotten good at communicating yeah. things that are way smarter people than me. That's have why
3: I, I love that you're a practicing doctor and it's not like you just quit being a doctor mm-hmm. and just did social media full time because it shows how credible you are and how dedicated you are to the craft. And
2: you're actually working with real world yeah. patients. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean I appreciate you saying that. I think it makes me better because what like yesterday I was seeing patients and when I was there I know what things they're wanting to know Mm -hmm. i understand the hesitations they have i understand their mental health struggles i also get better at learning how to speak with them so that they understand what i'm saying so i can bring that to social media Mm -hmm. so i think both worlds actually help me be more effective in the other world
4: Mm
3: -hmm. what about fasting i've heard too that in addition to cold plunging i think joe rogan or the guy that owns the ufc i forget somebody was saying like oh if you fast like just every once in a while it it, it, it gets rid of uh cancer (laughs) stuff that can cause cancer and has all these health benefits and to me it made sense because i'm like yeah humans back in the day probably had periods of time where they didn't have food and so fasting was probably normal and maybe
1: pause right there just on that one statement what did you say about humans back in the day
3: had times where they didn't have any food okay were those people healthy probably died really young probably died in their 20s
1: (laughs) Why are we
4: constantly <laughs> going back
1: and be like, yo, paleo, this is what they did 2,000 years ago? It's like, their like lifestyle is like 27. Why are we hyped it's about natural. it? It's natural. We're living to like. Past a hundred now, and we're like, but back then they did this. <laughs> it's like, okay, like I don't that's, know. that's cool. Yeah, that's, that's cool good. that they did okay. that. I mean, uh, so we also used to bleed people out back in the day. That's as a so crazy to I me, I mean, right? Again, this is so not even a medical conversation; just a kind of a logical thing. Like, oh my why gosh! Why are we constantly like? I understand looking at evolution anthropology is important, but like the idea of the reason why this thing is good is because back then that's how it worked. Is not good medical evidence for me to recommend something.
2: Thank you to Pros for sponsoring today's episode. Why would you settle for mass-produced one-size-fits-all hair care? That's bogus. It's pretty interesting because there's so many things in your life that you're like, you know that have to be specific to you. Like, why would we not think that our hair care needs to be the same way? Yeah, and that's Doesn't why I appreciate Pros because they really get to know you and make a product that is specific to you and your needs. So here's how it works. So first, Pros starts by asking you some of your hair goals. Like for me, I use a lot of heat on my hair. I'm washing it all the time because I work out a lot and I just... I need to because I sweat a lot. Some of my goals is to protect against damage and to prevent breakage. So I put that in there. And then also they have an in-depth consultation that follows to ask you about who you are as a person. They even go very in-depth asking about eating habits even, your damage level of your hair like I was saying, and your exercise. So many questions and so many details go into formulating this perfect shampoo, conditioner, other product for you as well. Something that's really cool about Pros is that it analyzes all of your answers and handpicks clean sustainably sourced ingredients to help you reach your hair goals plus it smells amazing <laughs> I smelled the pros products and they smell like a legit spa which I feel like I is really important to me in a hair product when
3: you smell good I'm just like wow I I cannot it's it's awesome it's exciting
2: <laughs> some of my favorite pros products are their shampoo conditioner they also have a pre-shampoo mask vitamins so many different options to get you clean and healthy hair that you're looking for to reach your hair goals and pros is so confident that you're going to love your product that if you're not 100% positive pros is the best hair care you've ever tried they will take the products back with no questions asked that is a guarantee you guys so you really have nothing to lose you might as well give it a try so custom made to order hair care with pros is the key to achieving all your hair goals this year take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 50% off your first subscription order today plus 15% off and free shipping every subscription order after that. Go to pros.com slash unplanned. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash unplanned for your free in-depth hair consultation and 50% off your first subscription order. Back to the episode.
3: Is it good for people maybe like every other month or something to do like a one or two day fast to help flush out toxins or cancer causing okay. stuff? Did I you don't eat know. today?
1: I did. You're still flushing out toxins. Oh, you're right. Yeah, so yeah. your kidneys, your liver they're doing a great job, they're keeping you alive, they're flushing Mm -hmm. out toxins, your colon is cleansing itself right now, you don't need to get a colonic cleanse or a coffee enema to do that. Like the body's awesome, like you don't need any of that stuff. My But like, if you if you enjoy it, if it helps you moderate your caloric intake, meaning that like, because you're fasting, and only eating during eight hours of the day doing that 16, eight thing, you then eat less calories, maybe that's a good strategy for you. So really, the calories in calories out thing that has been so controversial lately is still very true. Mm. It's still a science formula. Now there's other things around it and it is more nuanced, but it's still true. And if, going keto, if doing intermittent fasting, if following some really restrictive diet is what's easiest for you, which I think the evidence shows that it's not because all these restrictive diets, people fail and bounce back and regain the weight. If that's what's easiest for you, if you love not eating in the morning and you love eating during an eight hour window, that's do it. I love it.
3: This morning I had a cinnamon dolce uh, tall latte from Starbucks, and they had this brand <laughs> Wait, new. Wait, this I, actually. And I, yeah, and I tried the brand new. It was like maple, maple chicken egg sandwich, whatever uh-huh. the breakfast sandwich.
1: That Definitely, was it, it I love that you used, in the beginning of this conversation were like, I try to eat the healthiest that I can when I eat out, but then I had a maple vanilla dolce latte with a egg biscuit. Hey, look, we're traveling. Have you Dr. given Mike, up? Have you given up the journey? <laughs>
3: okay, so maybe I could. I could probably do healthy. Like how? how how healthy is that you know that's
2: Starbucks. i was actually gonna ask about your take on like caffeine yeah because i feel like well i think we're effort? upset not we're like as a country we're obsessed with caffeine we definitely
1: are we're definitely over caffeinated um let me answer your question first and then we can go to caffeine oh yeah um is that unhealthy the fact that you ate it today doesn't really matter okay that's the true answer the fact that if you make that part of your lifestyle i would advise against it okay but the fact that you did it today who cares Remember, life's so multifactorial. So many risks, so many things. You ate, good.
3: I heard you mention on your channel that caffeine helps your metabolism. So is it good to, yeah, like having coffee every day? Because sometimes I'm like, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have coffee because I want to help my body just like, you know, wake me up naturally. And if I can avoid having an energy drink or a coffee today, I, I will. So should you make caffeine part of your diet uh, to help metabolism, I guess?
1: Yeah, like caffeine, much like alcohol, has had kind of a weird relationship with healthcare. If you look at decade by decade, the news articles on caffeine, it's like coffee prolongs life. 10 years later, coffee shortens life, causes cancer. Uh, coffee doesn't, it's like, let's be honest what coffee is. Coffee, why we love it is because it has caffeine. That's the primary ingredient that, why people reach for coffee. And in general, caffeine is well tolerated by most people. Um, It gives them uh, a boost of energy, of sensation of energy that they feel more alert, more focused. Uh, In fact, do you know what the number one sports supplement that has the most evidence and research behind it is? Whey protein? Nope. Creatine? Come on.
3: Caffeine. Caffeine. That was stupid. Yeah, that was really dumb. (laughs)
1: Literally has an effect on athletic performance and it (laughs) helps if you take a specific dose before uh, your uh, athletic endeavor. But there's also side effects to caffeine. It can make people feel jittery. It can cause issues with the heart. Overconsumption of caffeine is a problem. And the most important thing about caffeine is it disrupts your sleep and we as a society because we're so over caffeinated not realizing that in order to reduce the amount of caffeine in your bloodstream by half it takes 6 hours mm. we have it after dinner and then we wonder why we're not waking up feeling well rested because we're really an overindulging in caffeine like people take a pre workout before their evening uh, workout routine and then they don't sleep well and they're like oh, I have anxiety no you have pre workout
4: <laughs> no yeah
1: that that's literally what is going on and Another tricky thing about caffeine is the body builds a pretty quick tolerance to it and then a dependence on it. So you know people who usually can't start their day without coffee, they're like, don't talk to me until I had my coffee. That's a dependence, that's a tolerance. So what 200 milligrams of caffeine does to you on day one versus on day 780 is gonna be a very big difference. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you don't have caffeine on day one, And you don't have caffeine on day 780 it's going to be much much worse for you because you actually become dependent on the caffeine so your performance if you don't get your caffeine actually drops off Mm. so if a patient takes a moderate amount of caffeine one to two cups maybe three cups a day i'm never going to tell them to stop unless there's a medical reason acid reflux palpitation something like that but if they don't take caffeine i'm not going to say it will help your life. It will help your metabolism. I wouldn't do that.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because a lot of, from what I've heard, it's like 300 milligrams a day is the max
3: you should have. 400, yeah. Oh, it's 400? Yep. Okay. And energy drinks these days are 200 milligrams yep. and coffee is 75. Is a cup of coffee 75? It,
1: there's a wide range depending on how it's brewed, where it's made. So it, the, I've seen the ranges go from like 70 to 440?
2: Yeah. No. Blonde roast? That's grande. The, I was telling Holy you Holy crap. About. Your
1: uncle has that. Two. Two of those? And then we wonder why people are struggling. So what's the, when you say moderate, what is in milligram terms? 200, 300. Okay. Which in is, fact, uh, for pregnancy, yeah. while, while folks uh, are pregnant, we actually say lower that 400 threshold to the 200, 300. Okay.
4: Uh,
2: I had 200 while pregnant and now 300 now that I'm breastfeeding. Okay. And that's been, I'm like, I, would, I don't think I'll ever need more than 300, like ever cool. in my life. That would be kind of crazy. <laughs>
3: Um, back to the pregnancy topic, we noticed that when Abby was pregnant and then postpartum and then we got pregnant by surprise, we noticed all of that as a couple, we started fighting more. And obviously like big life changes, really big life changes. We also moved and so many things happened. Like what does science tell us about like pregnancy's effect? Yeah, pregnancy's effect on like mood, hormones and just like couple satisfaction.
1: Well, there's... The conversation that needs to be had surrounding what baby blues is versus true postpartum depression. So some people will feel down after pregnancy and it might be very short lived. And there's very uh, sizable amount of people. And why I say sizable, it's, it's an important minority of people will develop postpartum depression and they don't seek help for it. And when they don't seek help, that's when the condition gets worse. So I encourage everyone to speak to their doctors if they're even feeling what may be baby blues, because it's important to allow an objective person to figure out is this baby blues or is this something else that requires further medical intervention. Um, the father also has impacts, uh, hormonally even, we've seen wow. this with some research studies, of hormonal shifts. So we've seen testosterone drops before, right before the baby comes, after the baby comes, and uh, oxytocin, um, you know, the cuddle hormone that we always talk about yeah. actually starts spiking in the father yeah. uh, with uh, spending more time with the baby.
4: That's Aww. sweet. And, you know,
1: people are quick to 2020 vision, Monday morning quarterback to be like, oh, well, that's so that the father is less aggressive and less seeking sex elsewhere and focusing on childcare. And that's a beautiful theory. And that's an, an initial theory, but it's not 100% proven yet. So it's important that we take all of these studies with a grain of salt. But it does make sense, right? Yeah.
3: That, yeah, that makes sense because I've been way more emotional. I like, I don't know, when I see little, I notice little kids now. Like when I'm out in public, and I'm like, oh, that's such a cute little kid. Like, it's like little, you never saw I, kids before. I didn't notice them before, but yeah. now I do because I'm so aware of my children and I love them so much. So that's crazy that, because I've definitely felt a change in me too. So it's funny that you're saying that, oh, dad's also experienced some sort of change as well.
1: For sure. It's, it's a very unique situation. And what I think it's cool in that it highlights how our experiences can shape our hormones and our neurotransmitters. And why do I think that's important? Because people will talk about, well, depression is a disease of neurotransmitters or mental health is a disease of neurotransmitters, so you have to take a medication. And while there's definitely reasons why you may need to take a medication, just doing therapy will change your neurotransmitters the same way that experiencing a baby's birth will change your hormones. So when people say, oh, therapy won't help me, won't fix my chemical problem, it will. It can. Like this is something that happens with our experiences and things outside of uh, just medications. Medications are not the only way to change our biology.
4: Mm, That's really cool.
3: Are there benefits to, you know, I know some people might have like a small group or uh, a community of friends they meet with. Um, that might not be therapy? Like is that, are there benefits to that too? I'm sure just like having a strong community probably gives
1: similar benefits to therapy. The number one factor for success and recovery from a mental health diagnosis is a good support system. Mm. So I make it a habit when I speak to patients that are going through something is, who is your social support? If there is a crisis situation where you're very worried about that you might do something bad, Mm -hmm. who are you gonna call? What's the phone number? how are you going to reach them? Is it a friend? Is it a family member? Is it a mental health specialist? Is it a hotline? And we create that crisis plan in case that those feelings do come up. So the social support system is incredibly important, not even in mental health. It really is all across the board. Like going to a doctor's office, bringing in a partner who can also hear the information will go a long way to getting better health outcomes. Mm. Like single mothers, part of why we speculate that they get they have worse outcomes, is that there's not a person advocating for them. Mm. We even see this bias sort of, uh, we used to say, a mother and a father is of utmost importance of having a child um, in order for the child to have the best development. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not even just a mother and the father. It's having two people. Mm. It's the presence of being able to split duties, Mm -hmm. about uh, being able to work while the other one watches the child, while one is struggling mentally, the other one can help cope, Mm -hmm. the advocacy... It's the presence of two that actually mm-hmm. helps. It's not about just mother and father.
3: I cannot believe how single parents do it. Yeah. I, like now that I've been a parent, it does not make sense. And I can see why it's so, I, I can see where things could go wrong. Cause it's, yeah. it's really hard even having the two of us. Mm-hmm. And now luckily we have more support. We have more family. When we first had our first kid, we didn't have any family really around. Um, but it's it's incredible to me that there's people out there that raise a kid by themselves.
1: Yeah. Mm. well that's why we were talking about survivorship bias you'll hear people from like the hustle community be like, look i hustled and that's why i'm successful that's the reason and it's look hustling and being prepared is important Mm -hmm. because luck favors the prepared meaning that if you're lucky and you're prepared you're going to get a better benefit but the fact that you had social support Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. really a form of luck The fact that the pregnancy happened the way it did is also a form of luck. The fact that your genetics are the way that they are, that you're largely healthy and you have healthy children, is a form of luck. So we have to remember when we make all these statements from positions of authority that there's a huge luck component and then there's things that are under our control and we should focus as much as we can on the things we can control and then be very grateful for the luck that we've had.
4: Mm. Mm -hmm.
3: It's like that statement, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah, that's Um, true too. So just, yeah, that community, it's really cool. And it's also uh, crazy, like from my experience, it was harder when it was just Abby and I with our first because we didn't have the support. We didn't have family around us. We um, also were just figuring out how to be parents. We had no (laughs) idea what we were doing. And now with two under two, um, we have family. We have so much more support. And we also knew what to expect. And so it's actually... To some
2: extent. I I, I will say that each baby has... I thought we'd be way more prepared in certain aspects. Like our second baby just doesn't really like breastfeeding. And I was like, I thought we knew how to do this. I thought everything was fine. But he just like, they throw their, they have their own individual personalities that make things more difficult. But yeah.
3: Thank you to Curology for sponsoring this portion of today's episode i used to have bad acne and i was very insecure about it i looked back at pictures today and i'm like holy cow how oh. did my acne get that bad remember when i had yeah, that, that massive, massive pimple and it i we like photoshopped it out of pictures with me and it you because so it was so bad. big did it hurt it did hurt it was
2: in the middle of your eyebrows yeah, and i just
3: got sick of on it on our
2: one year dating anniversary i was so
3: frustrated with the acne that i had and eventually i was talking to people about it and the acting freshman year of college, and this girl told me, hey, Matt, you should try Curology. And I had never heard of it before, but I went ahead and got it anyway because I was so desperate to try to like treat my acne. And man, am I glad that I did that because I saw results within the first, I would say month or two.
2: And to get into a dermatologist, not only is it very expensive and especially like overwhelming, like when we were in college, the likelihood of us reaching out to a dermatologist Mm -hmm. was just very low.
3: But with Curology, they connect you with a dermatology provider that you can message and you can ask questions about hey, what type of face wash should I use? Hey, what type of moisturizer should I use? And you can send them the list of the current skincare products that you're using and they can let you know if those are okay to use on your skin or not.
2: So you just fill out a quiz about your skin, share photos, and a provider will prescribe a personalized formula based on your skin's unique needs. Products are shipped directly to your door every two months. Curologist personalized prescriptions are formulated to treat your individual needs from acne to the earliest signs of aging. They use a combination of three clinically researched ingredients, making it more effective than non-prescription cleansers and moisturizers alone Curology products give you everything you need and nothing you don't without fragrance or parabens for a limited time you can get your first Curology skincare box for just $5 when you go to Curology.com unplanned go to Curology.com unplanned for this free offer that's Curology C-U-R-O-L-O-G-Y dot unplanned trial is 30 days applied only to your first box subject to consultation new subscribers only
3: back to the episode well, I guess part of it, too, is we also, like, right around now, this time last year is when we found out we were pregnant <laughs> yeah. by surprise. So I think that, like, really made things stressful. So I'm sure that plays into it, too. That right. we're like, wow, it's like our life
1: is, I feel like we're back. I feel
4: like <laughs> like, <laughs> it feels pretty good we to made, not be pregnant. We
1: made it out of the dark place. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, celebrating those victories together goes a long way in helping you guys feel more bonded. Mm. Because it's very easy, and this happens to couples quite often, um, after having a baby, whether it's the first or the second, uh, sex goes down because a lot of the hormones, like the oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, that you used to get from one another, ends up coming between you and being the caregiver.
2: Oh, that's interesting. So
1: it's very important that you reestablish that. And sometimes you have to force it in order to reestablish it, meaning like you might not be in the mood now, but then just start with like a foot rub, the the power of touch, like that will go a long way to reinstating things because you have to force it. It's almost like fake it till you make it. Uh, And that's also true for motivation. A lot of people think they have to be motivated to do something like, let's say, go to the gym and then they'll have the action. But you actually have to do the action, and then you'll get the reward, and then the Mm. motivation will follow. Mm. So again, you're faking it, you're going to the gym when you don't want to, and then you'll enjoy it, and you'll start loving it, and then you'll be a proponent of it. Then you'll get your friends to do it as well. But unless you take that first step to do it when you don't want to, the motivation's usually not gonna come.
4: Mm.
1: It's
3: crazy, I mean, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's crazy just like how yeah, like, libido is affected by birth and postpartum, and yeah, not just for one person, it's, it's for both couples, and I guess, like, could you speak more to that, I guess, just how how couples can, like, try to get their sex life back on track when there's so many big changes? Uh, with with all of that
1: yeah first is uh from my doctor's standpoint i want to make sure nothing medically is going on that's causing that to be an issue so Mm -hmm. you know you you want to get your checkups and make sure things are well in that regard um second is when you thinking about faking until you make it is you have to be intentional with this and intentional doesn't just mean the touch and the things we discussed earlier but also scheduling the time And it's very difficult to schedule time. I I know both of you have spoken about this openly, but scheduling something as simple as one hour where you have your own time will go a long way to allowing you to feel free. And that's why uh, you'll often hear this even from couples without kids that vacation sex is different than home sex. Why? Because it's new, it's free. You don't have the responsibility. The phone is not a thing, so you need yep. to fake that vacation, even if you can't go on vacation, by giving yourself an, a slotted time. And when you do that, you'll raise the chance of it naturally happening. But you have to be intentional with it. It's funny that you're saying that because I cannot. I could. I can even count the number of times
3: that like we've we've gone to you know have some alone time and immediately as soon as like clothes come off you hear on the baby monitor it's like, like
4: exactly. it's, no, it's, it's
3: seriously, like a
1: movie yeah
3: it doesn't make sense it's like they know it's like they yeah. they're reading our minds well, they're like
1: why are you taking my oxytocin exactly i want it
3: exactly no it's like they know somehow and i'm like it does, and i don't believe in that like i don't think my kid knows but yeah. it happens so many times it's like There's they have be reading my mind like they have to have some sort of you know sixth sense about this because it, it literally did not make any sense and and then like who wants to do it when you're hearing your baby cry the whole time so then obviously (laughs) then you can't so you go to help the kid and then yeah it's just that's how i
2: feel about people that co-sleep with their children i'm like how in the world does that work oh yeah get that
3: we haven't even talked about co-sleeping i am so because we actually we never did that with our kids I mean, there were, there were times where I'd fall asleep with like my my son on my chest. I don't like roll around at all when I sleep, but that, that would just be like in the early morning if I'm like, I'm so tired, you, you just woke me up. Minutes. I need an extra 30 minute nap. But I, I I think like co-sleeping has been talked about. I know I'm just like throwing that on you right now, but I guess what should people be aware of when it, when it comes to co-sleeping with their newborn?
1: Yeah, so the data when I was coming out uh, of my medical education was really surrounding a condition called SIDS, which is Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Mm-hmm. And co-sleeping increases the risk of that. Because what happens when you're going through a pregnancy, either alone or with a partner, you're tired. You're mm-hmm. fatigued. Uh, you may be sleeping at weird hours. That's when you're most likely to twitch. That's when you're most likely to sleep so deeply because you're so exhausted. Mm-hmm. And you can cut off the baby's ability to breathe. And that could be fatal in some cases.
3: And back to the the sex thing, too. I'm curious, is there like a number that like couples sh- should...
1: Do it per yeah, like week? Yeah, 47 is usually what I recommend.
3: Okay.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've seen articles like the perfect amount and like do this. And so I don't know because then I've also read articles like, oh, it's possible to do it too much. And so I didn't know if there was like a set like this is the natural no, guideline. I
1: wish because then yeah. medicine would be a lot easier. I could be uh, like, oh, well, you're not up to your seven times this week.
3: That's that's so funny. Yeah, that, that makes sense, though.
1: It's not even just individuals are different. Couples are different. Yeah. And like what sex to one couple is different than what sex is to another couple. So like it's such a diversity, like being a doctor that has seen and treated tens of thousands of patients, probably 10,000 patients, um, you've seen such a wide variety of humans and what humans enjoy and how humans interact with one another, how they view their health, how they view the healthcare system, that you're like, to speak with certainty here is like, the only thing I can be certain of is that there's way more I don't know than I actually know, even though it sounds like I'm answering mm. all your questions. Yeah, I, but I'm usually just answering your questions with more questions. I'm actually really <laughs> impressed,
3: though, because I'm, I don't know how you keep all that information in your brain. Like, I'm like, do you just like go on your computer at home and just like,
1: let's look up research today and just like read it for fun? <laughs> well, a lot of times I follow uh, on social media the major guideline organizations. Mm. Uh, like, For me, I'm a family medicine provider, which means that I do obstetrics. I, I don't practice it now because uh, my schedule doesn't permit to it, but During my training, I delivered 30 plus babies. Uh, Gynecology, I still practice, like pap smears, preventive care, things like that. Um, But I also see children uh, as young as newborns that are coming in for certain weight checks or things like that uh, to 101 year olds. That's kind of the beauty of what I do. But we also have this organization called the American Academy of Family Physicians that puts out statements. Um, The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, they put out great guidelines And then the the, the one that I follow the most is called the United States Preventive Service Task Force. They put out guidelines for screening tests on which ones show benefit versus ones that we shouldn't be doing or there's insufficient evidence to recommend Mm. because screening is important. If we can get ahead of a problem and prevent it, that's great. But we also need to be honest that in many times we can't do that perfectly yet. So we shouldn't rush to start screening people for every condition because we may not have a good answer. Mm.
3: And clearly you're super passionate about all this. What made you decide that you wanted to be a doctor?
1: (laughs) I think it was uh, early exposure to the field. So I came to the United States when I was six from Russia. My father was a doctor in Russia, but then had to redo his medical education here um, in his 40s, in a new language, um, and he had to do the whole process, med school, residency. So it was really hard. Wow. But I was also of age now that I'm 9, 10 years old. I'm watching my dad do it. Versus most kids are really young when their parents are going through the education system so they don't see it. So I saw it. I was really curious about it, excited about it. My father actually was like, maybe you shouldn't do this because there's a lot of healthcare system issues plaguing Mm. us right now and I think it's going to get worse. He was right. Mm. Um, But I fell in love with it and I thought it was a perfect match of something I was passionate about and I was talented in in terms of my communication with patients and wanting to learn about the body, being able to hold information. And I think when you match passion with ability that's when you get kind of the best uh, outcomes for your career mm-hmm. i'm curious too what your
3: vices are because you know you know all th- what the research says you know what's good for you but i'm curious if you're like you know smoking a six-pack here or there I don't know, i'm like is there something where you're like i know what the research is but i still do this oh that's interesting so
1: first of all i have to say doctors are the biggest hypocrites on the planet <laughs> just just because we know the evidence on something doesn't mean we follow it and also If I tell my patient the evidence, I don't expect them to make changes, I just want them to be aware of risks. That's really what my goal is. Mm-hmm. So, just because I'm aware of risks doesn't mean I don't do things. I think the worst one is the fact that I'm a professional boxer now. <laughs> That's right. I saw that you box somebody. Yeah, we saw. That's yeah. really cool. I have two boxing matches. Um, do you have more upcoming right now? I, I'm trying to get one scheduled. Yeah, no I way. fought on Showtime pay per view. That's ridiculous. So like, wow. As a professional, What don't you do against <laughs> the guy with 20 plus fights? He's a UFC fighter, and um, I unfortunately lost on Dr. doctor's scorecards, but it's not something I would ever recommend to patients because head injuries and all that is terrible. But you know, I've I I know the risks are and I'm accepting of them and not recommending it to the public. I'm saying go take a boxing class. Hit the bag, work with the trainer. That's mm-hmm. super healthy. But don't become a professional fighter.
3: Yeah. It's probably the head trauma. I mean, I think about Mike Tyson and just like he has probably been punched in the face. I can't even count how many times.
1: Exactly. So, so I don't recommend have that. Have you felt but yes, any, I do it.
3: any side effects from boxing, getting punched um, in the
1: face? When I was in like heavy sparring days, headaches for sure Oh yeah, is a thing. And I hate those. So I try and limit full contact sparring. Um but you need to do it if you want to be a professional i mean look like we as humans all take calculated risks when we drive there's mm-hmm. a risk when we cross the street there's a risk um people who uh solo rock climb i don't know if you saw the movie with uh alex free solo uh, yeah free solo
3: i saw the one where the, the guy died at the end it was so sad oh,
1: I, I didn't see that one was that there's free solo? There's another oh, di- yeah. different movie yeah was, but see it's like so everyone's sad. accepting of risks right like, yeah they they're aware that these things could happen but they want to push the boundaries because you only get one life and yep. you make your choices with it as long as it's you making the choice we have full body autonomy and that's one of the main principles of healthcare of being a doctor the patient has autonomy and you first do no harm so i never recommend an intervention unless i'm certain that it's not going to cause more harm than good and then once i do recommend it i allow the patient to have their autonomy and decide what they actually want.
3: And what are you hoping to accomplish with the boxing? Is that like a childhood dream that you had to be a (laughs) professional boxer one day? pretty much.
1: I always wanted to be a professional athlete. And then uh, it's actually a sad story, kind of probably a downer for this convo, but when I was in med school, I lost my mom to cancer and that was a rough part of my journey. But I think it shaped me to be a better doctor, to be more empathetic with my patients because having to tell doctors to stop chest compressions on your mom at you know age 2021 20, is is not easy and i think i'm a better doctor as a result mm. but after that i was in a dark place i moved back in with my dad traveling 2 hours a day to go to school cuz i no longer live near school and i said i need to do something to get out of this funk to do the the action instead of wait for the motivation right to fake mm-hmm. it so i faked it and got a Groupon for a boxing class <laughs> And went to this boxing class, started boxing as a hobby, then had my first fight against a YouTuber to 10,000 people in the audience, hundreds of thousands at home, won that, gave that money to the Ukrainian cut war conflict that I got paid for that fight, then got an offer to fight on Showtime pay-per-view under the Jake Paul, Anderson Silva, on their their undercard, got paid $125,000 for that donated that to the Harlem Boys and Girls Club so like a lot has come from this very unique journey and I feel like I'm very lucky that I've had this opportunity. and I'm like, I'm gonna press this luck as much as I can. And it's a, it's, it's a really cool experience because it also makes me a better doctor too. Like yeah. when they come in and they're, they're talking about a musculoskeletal injury, whereas before I'll be like, oh, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. But if it's preventing them from doing something they love, mm-hmm. I know how much it means to them. So mm-hmm. I'm much more empathetic in that regard.
3: That's cool that you're very focused on philanthropy too, because that's actually how I found you. Really, um, I think it was a Ryan Trahan video where I think you donated to <laughs> yeah. uh, Feeding America yeah we gave then, him a
1: hundred thousand bucks yeah. yeah
3: and so like i know that you'd also donated to uh you said the harlem boys and girls club yep um and then also to the uh you yeah, to the to ukraine so yeah. very very cool that you're very focused on philanthropy. Do you just, have you always been that way? Have you always as a kid just wanted to give back?
1: In in 2015, when I had my little viral moment of fame, the first thing that I did was, how do I do something positive with this? Mm -hmm. I launched my own foundation called Limitless Tomorrow. Like I did all the paperwork myself. I got it filed as a 501c3. We've given out some incredible scholarships to people, not just to go to school, but we also gave a hefty amount of money that we raised uh, through fundraising efforts to the creation of a medical tool for those who have ear and nose deformities either through trauma or they're born with them mm-hmm. and this tool greatly simplified the surgical process so that this surgery can be performed in other countries mm-hmm. where they don't have as specialized techniques um, and that was only made possible with the help of social media and even our Patreon, like some people have Patreons that they collect money from their fans. We have a Patreon where if you pay nine ninety five 95 or whatever it is to be a member, that money every month gets donated wherever the viewer choose. So we have mm. a live stream, they nominate three charities, we talk about them, and then they all vote and we wow. see where the money goes each month. And I think like... With all the stuff we've been doing, we've donated already like seven figures, so it's pretty exciting to be able to do that. Yeah. That's good
3: really, for really you. cool. So it's I, really fun to be I able to. I want to, to continue do to do more of that with our channel and so I'm just like really inspired by you and other people like Ryan who have like found ways Ryan's to man. I know but it's, it's <laughs> I I love it cuz like I love being an entertainer, I love making entertainment, but it's so cool when you can like entertain and do good at the same time. You had a fight entertaining made all this money for charity. Yeah. I love that. Like yeah. it's just like a double whammy. It just it's the perfect combo. So, very inspired by you. Um thank you for making the journey out today of to course, uh, of be on the podcast and uh yeah, it's I just learned so much today so i really appreciate
1: you coming awesome. out awesome yeah. i'm glad thank i always like you. when people are excited to learn thank you for yeah. being as engaged as you were. because <laughs> yeah. sometimes you go on conversations and people are like what do you do <laughs> so, uh, it's exciting to have people be excited yeah Thanks. i learned I, a
3: lot yeah i learned so much my brain's about to explode so <laughs> you guys have not checked out dr mike um, he has his own podcast the checkup right yes the checkup um, man, as well yes. as his main youtube channel you guys can find him on youtube as well as i'm sure instagram and so many other places Everywhere um and yeah thank you for doing what you do and thank you for especially the ph- the philanthropy you do love that of
1: course awesome and yeah. uh you guys uh, will give you my number afterwards you can uh, any medical question I'm all yours thank you so (laughs) So much uh, have me on call
3: I was saying that she's like uh, she was like is he married because like whoever (laughs) marries him like you I (laughs) feel like (laughs) having somebody having somebody that you're married to that can just be like oh the kid has this problem yeah like do this I think especially
2: with kids like I'm always tempted to message our doctor I'm like I'm probably annoying the heck out of them but if they were in your house yeah yeah,
3: you hey you got the good looks you've got the credentials like (laughs) let's wipe this guy up
1: (laughs) yeah please but my brother uh, just had a baby, and he's not technically my brother, but um, he had a baby, and constantly they're they're calling me, and they're like, "What do we do in this situation?" And most of the time, it's me just giving reassurance mm-hmm. and things to look out for that I would be concerned for. Mm. So, a lot of what being a doctor is, where it's beneficial, is the triage aspect of when is mm. it serious, when should we go, mm. uh, or where should we go? Should we go to urgent care, primary care, emergency room? That kind of guidance really helps. And I feel like it's easy enough that I can take some time in my day to help. So. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mike, thank you so much. We'll actually get you. I think you have another podcast to go film. Yes. So thank you so
3: much. Awesome. Thank and you. And as always, we say peace out, dudes here. Right. Three, peace. two, one. Peace, peace out, you. dudes.